Welcome to the 48th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about the trends in the last year that we've liked and disliked, as well as things we see coming in the next year. Wow, it's December. Yeah, it's getting late in the year. How'd that happen? Oh, I don't know. 11 months or something passed? <laughs> yeah. As happens from time to time, this is a, a softer episode rather than a hard technical one, but it's kind of important to me at least to go back through and review the year that we've gone through and kind of what we're looking for in the next year, and I figured this is a, a reasonable venue for doing that. One of my favorite trends this year so far is that people are starting to move out of the old old way of looking at things. Things are no longer logs or metrics or those things. We're moving more into visibility engineering as a as a general whole. Monodorama this year really emphasized that. It really sent that point home, yeah. We're moving away from the classic Nagio style checks in general. We're we're moving away from the black box monitoring. They're still important. We're still gonna do them. But we're no longer quite so worried about how long did it take the server to, to respond to a status code. We're now worried about what the server's doing internally and how fast it's processing various loops and making sure that we instrument it in a way that makes it visible and operable to the outside. And not only simply visible, but the keyword being observable. If you have a question, how can you analyze the data coming out of your code to find out the answer rather than having to go uh, take your code offline into a debugging session? And how can you immediately take that data and build useful trends and diagnosis from it? The winner in the space so far seems to be Prometheus for the metric side of things. Almost everything that I see now has a reasonable exporter for, for Prometheus. Prometheus is getting stronger in a lot of the places it's been classically weak in like long-term storage. There's a lot of really good things happening there. And it's the the client libraries are reasonable enough for developers to incorporate into their projects. So if you're supporting a team of developers, asking them to add Prometheus support is a very reasonable thing. Prometheus 2.0 is uh, pretty fresh out. Um, it's been out for a few weeks at this point. And one of the things that we've complained about before on this lovely podcast is Prometheus's handling of histograms. And that situation is vastly improved uh, with the new database store that Prometheus has. So there's been a ton of advancements and a ton of work put into making Prometheus even better visibility and observability platform. The other side of this coin is the the logging side of it to me. And there's been a lot of improvements there. Elasticsearch has done a, bu a bunch of wonderful things with version 6 that's out now. It's only freshly out the gate at this point. But also Amazon has started to incorporate more data mining features into a lot of their storage platforms. So if you log correctly into Glacier, you can actually do SQL-style queries against that data now without having to thaw the whole thing out. So there's a lot of interesting things coming with harvesting old data at volume for things like that. And I guess Amazon Redshift and the, there's other products in that space. That yeah, anything is cheaper than having to download all your Glacier archives. Yeah, or even if it's just an S3 archive bucket, just downloading and decompressing all of your individual, you know, tars of log files. So this is this is a huge win for a giving business forward. Yeah, giving business intelligence folks something better to work with than just okay, here's a bucket full of things. I think one thing to keep in mind in this in this particular area is as as we move forward to the uh, methodology of observ observability. I guess I can't talk tonight. Um, it's important to not forget 
what we have learned with black box style monitoring uh, with products like Nagus, and that we do still need uh, synthetic monitoring of some form. Uh, it's not something that goes away because we have something better, but we have methodologies that can get us better information so that we can better predict, better know what's happening uh, inside our application and respond to, to issues that might arise. It's not that we no longer need to actually be able to check to make sure our app is still running. Very well said. I completely agree with all of that. There's my end-of-the-year advice. A lot of people see this as the death of the classic tools, and nothing could be further from the truth. Yes. The classic tools I, will still There's be so there. many people that are Nagios haters to go toward the extreme and really just want to get rid of Nagios. And yeah, it's an old tool that's kind of crufty. It works really well for what it's good at. And Prometheus isn't a replacement for that specific functionality, but it does open up a completely new arena of of ways to better tune our, our stacks to more increase our revenue stream, frankly. Um, so these are new tools, not really, not necessarily replacement tools. Another thing that's happened this year is the container space seems to have finally settled upon an, or an orchestration platform commonly, which I was very surprised to see actually happen. And that winner, as far as I can tell, is Kubernetes. Kubernetes is all the rage. If you're not using Kubernetes, you're not a cool kid. And apparently, so I'm not a cool kid, but... I'm apparently not a cool kid either. But it's been really interesting following conversations in the Prometheus ecosphere about Kubernetes. And frankly, if you're uh, doing visibility and monitoring on Kubernetes, you get first-rate response from the community. If you're uh, using other platforms, the community's still there, they help you out but you don't get as quick or as many replies and responses. And sometimes things are just kind of slower to get patches tested and upstream. But if you're using Kubernetes, you're the cool kid. To me, the most telling thing is that Docker themselves are now officially supporting Kubernetes. And they have a press release they put out, which I'll put in the show notes. And for Docker to get behind Kubernetes means that really and truly, that's what people are using. Amazon now has the Elastic Kubernetes service as of reInvent a few weeks ago. And the Mesosphere people are even now supporting Kubernetes directly. So that is basically... They every are? I was not aware of that. Yes, that was in the news very recently that they're, they're now on board. So if you're setting up a new container stack at this point, I think it would be insane to, consider, to not consider Kubernetes very heavily. It was kind of like Rails a couple of years ago where Ruby became popular because of Rails. And there was a huge community that drove it. And while there's a huge and thriving community, it gets a lot of attention and a lot of bug fixes and a lot of just a lot of eyeballs on it. So it gets better really quickly. And it's hard to challenge that with anything else. So I would definitely look forward to more advancements in the Kubernetes sphere and more integrations from applications that you know and love with Kubernetes in the, in the coming year. And probably more cloud providers directly supporting it. Oh, yeah. Moving along. I am I'm both happy and not surprised to see that serverless or Lambda has not taken over everything the way that people prophesized when it was announced a couple of years ago. It's still growing. It's growing rapidly, but it's not eating into every other space the way people initially thought. I think part of the limiting factor here is that it's so tied to the Amazon ecosystem that you can't run it as a hybrid. You can't really do anything else with it, and people are aware of that. So there's a little more fear of getting yourself locked into everything runs inside of Amazon. 
Yeah, that's quite a bit of of technology stack you have to have internally to be able to duplicate some of that serverless architecture. So I'm glad to see that folks are being being cautious there. Um, it's definitely been touted in a couple of places as the you know replacement for containers and and salt and pepper and everything else. But I definitely see it's being approached with some caution and used quite heavily in some places where where it's a real win. So yeah. that's a really interesting tool in your tool bag. Yeah, I've seen some really interesting things with Lambda. People doing like log pipelines, like doing log processing, taking in batches of messages off of a message queue, processing them with Lambda functions, then outputting to whatever the storage backend is. And these are places that people wouldn't have classically thought of Lambda running, but it runs very well because they're these small packages of work. And Amazon recently doubled the memory footprint allowable for Lambda functions. So it's definitely got some growth behind it, but much like something we get to a little later, it's not replacing everybody else the way a lot of the proponents originally thought it would. Yay, it turns out you still need servers. So I'm going to skip ahead a little bit in our list. This came up a little maybe a month or two ago on one of the subreddits that I follow. There was a, a particular individual who was ranting about no ops and how all ops were going away and they were basically useless. And if you use the word no ops in a non-ironic way, I pretty much want to punch you in the face. Do I need to hold you back, Brendan? Eh, not, not holding me back, but it's it's a shorthand for a developer to say, I don't value your position in the organization. I don't, you're a coworker of mine. I wish you ill. And I think that as a developer, I am the only usable or I'm the only worthwhile person in this organization and everybody else is here to serve me. And that's the kind of person that I have no desire to work with or work around. And it just, it, it boils my blood so quickly. Um, a couple of years ago, this was a really big thing. Google was, was using it in hashtags and stuff on, I think, conferences and papers and stuff for a little while. And they were intending it to be, hey, if you don't have an operations team, you can run your stuff in the cloud and it will be, you can leverage the cloud as operations teams, not as you will get rid of your operations teams. I've definitely seen some other developers and other folks out in the field that have approached some of the new tools, uh, software as a service tools, cloud stacks that we have as a way of of being able to uh, push forward code and do continuous integration and build up your revenue stream in a way that's less dependent on operations. And I think that's where where this term starts to be brought up. But it's just because we have better tools doesn't mean there's still, we don't need the, we don't need the mindset of an operations team to make sure these tools are managed well and deployed well. There's lots of stuff that, that even with Kubernetes hosted by Amazon, you still need an operational footprint for and mindset for, to make sure that your, your revenue stream is is online and scalable in the future and and that we can work with our developers to make a better platform. And I totally grant that as our industry moves forward, the folks, the, the system administrators and the operations engineers who don't do any coding or don't want to get involved in source control or don't want to don't want to do the DevOps side of the work are going to have less and less interesting jobs to do. This has been true for a decade at this point, it seems. 
the interesting jobs, the ones that pay well, the ones that have challenge, the ones that have meaning and make you happy to come to work in the morning, they're getting harder in, in the sense that there's more programming, there's more complexity, there's more thinking to do. And individuals have more responsibility. There's more servers, there's more tasks, there's more platforms to support. And there's probably honestly going to be less actual physical jobs in the space, but they're the better jobs. So that's one of the trends. So if you're not comfortable with your coding, uh, spend some time brushing up. Choose a language. Doesn't matter which one. Yeah, that's definitely coming, you know, this next year and the following years. This is going to be an ongoing trend that if you want to sit there and push buttons in a Windows interface, find a large government institution that's moving very slowly and hope you can camp out for the rest of your career because or a bank. there's not all of the jobs that I consider interesting are the ones that require coding or team interoperation with developers and security engineers and, and the other members is no longer a silo where you sit and do your operations work by yourself. Yeah. If you want to increase your paycheck, brush up on your coding skills and don't use the term no ops. Keep Brendan sane. Yeah, I, w- I will get angry at you if you do that. All right, what about ZFS, Brendan? I really like how ZFS is gaining traction. Oh, heck yes. It, it warms my heart to know that people are starting to really get and understand why you want to be exceedingly careful with the data you have on desk and do everything you can in your power to make sure the data you have on disk is the data you think you have on disk. Ten years ago, when I first saw ZFS on Solaris, I was amazed and impressed. And FreeBSD picked it up pretty quickly. And I was like, yeah, that, that's interesting. But Linux hasn't gotten it. And Linux has famously said it won't be happening and other things. So it's been ten years. And now it seems to be hitting mainstream. Um, Ubuntu Server is now shipping it as part of the LTS release. A lot of other interesting features are starting to get built on top of ZFS because it allows a lot of really nice semantics like copy on write snapshots and other things that let you really play with data. So it's a lot of the visibility tools that I've looked at require ZFS under the hood and they delegate a lot of the a lot of the difficult file system related tasks uh, to ZFS. Uh, the fact ZFS can do inline compression uh, with a, an, a property set on the file system that you can have differing settings in different parts of the tree that you can easily send differential snapshots from one file system to another, be it on a local or remote system. There's all kinds of fun stuff there. If you have lots and lots of memory to burn, you can deduplicate in line in the file system, but you have to have so much memory. Yeah, it's kind of scary still. But yeah, ZFS is totally a mainstream thing now. And a lot of people have really lamented the fact that there are no good file systems for Linux. And it's true. Uh, ZFS is really the only, what I would call a modern file system for Linux. Uh, there's BTRFS that's still around. Um, it still has its shortcomings. Uh, Facebook is actively supporting it. Um, and of course, this would be the, the GPL'd uh, next generation file system, modern file system for Linux. Um, but I will note that, and maybe I can get it in the show notes, Red Hat recently... Uh, removed uh, BTRFS support uh, from their RHEL product. So RHEL 7 will still uh, will still support it, but it looks like it won't be supported at all with RHEL 8. Damn. Which is telling in so very many ways. Um, there's BcacheFS, which is another copy-on-write file system 
uh, that's GPL. Uh, and it's very much in the early stages as well. So maybe there's some there's some hope there of a GPL Linuxable uh, copy on write file system, but I wouldn't hold my breath. Uh, I think ZFS is going to be the answer for doing data storage at scale, data warehousing for for a while now. Especially for people who care about their data and care about the correctness of the verifiable correctness of their data. The fact that you can verify the data on demand rather than, hey, I want to pull that record. What do you mean there's a CRC error? So we've covered some of the stuff coming in the next year. Um, Is there anything else, Jack, that you're interested in? Anything else that I'm interested in for next year? Um, I'm thinking more and more about SystemD and thinking more and more that the Linux distributions will continue to embrace and systems D will system D will will continue its ever forward marching progress to own a Linux distribution near you, uh, which frankly is all fine and and very good. System D has done more to unify the Linux distributions more than any other piece of software or agreement or movement uh, prior. So I I see that continuing and I see SystemD becoming a better piece of software for it over the next year. I also think that that groups will start to solidify in opposition of the SystemD takeover of Linux. And I think we'll start to see some some actual groups um, coalesce probably around FreeBSD um, that are folks trying to go in a different direction from what SystemD brings to Linux. And that, too, is okay and what open source is all about. Um, but there's been lots of of rumblings on the Internet. And I think a lot of the technologies that we're talking about, like ZFS, um, like D-Trace, if you're uh, familiar with D-Trace on Solaris and BSD systems, uh, will start to uh, force some folks to to cool out around some non-Linux operating systems, which I think will be an interesting uh, thing to follow as it progresses. I can, but that's my looking forward statement that I will guarantee will be wrong. Well, I agree with most of that. I think the System D stuff is especially telling. System D itself, the the idea of replacing a NIT with something that's a little faster and more flexible is pretty awesome. And there, there's pieces of that that. We've talked about it on this podcast before that I love. Yeah, but, totally agree. We, the old style of net system needed to go. Oh gosh, was it bad? Um, Upstart, I really enjoyed, um, but I see why System D won out over it. Yeah, but the the idea that System D is also managing everything else, and there, there's a number of bugs that have been filed against it that show the folks who are developing it are not taking into account all the use cases the way that traditionally Linux and Unix software has. Um, one of the ones that amused me recently was when the last login session of a user exits, it kills all the processes of that user. And Oopsie. that works. Bye-bye re- screen. Well, it works reasonably well for, for a desktop that you log into, but for a server that you're running things as named processes or named you're running services with users instead of as root, suddenly you get some really unexpected corner cases. And 
it was not seen as a problem initially. And so just there, there's there's pieces of this that I really I find they, they, there's pieces of this that give me pause. And I really like the ports tree. I like a lot of the FreeBSD things that they do. I like the way they work. I like the, their development methodology and their cycle. So I look forward to having other more varied platforms for us to work on. And frankly, it just makes open source in general is stronger to have multiple solutions that are all improving and growing. And a bunch of the, of the other toolkit stuff that we have nowadays uh, seems to be coming from the BSD world, which is why I'm sort of thinking in that direction. Another thing I definitely see coming in the new year is the coming takeover. Uh, a Docker will, will rule our lives. And that is both amazing and kind of scary. Containers are not a new thing. Um, you know, speaking of the BSDs, uh, FreeBSD was really first with containers. They call them jails. And Linux, uh, over the years, has cobbled together some features to build what we know of today as containers. And Docker is very much just the management of those containers. And it's it's amazing to me how they've been able to build good management for containers that is super easy and do all the good media and PR behind it to get it popular. Uh, so I definitely see that as a growing um, as a growing tide, you know, coming at us that will continue to do so. Yeah, they really have built a, a fairly amazing developer community and user community around the Docker container format, for lack of a better term. And it, it only shows upward it's only showing upward growth right now and it's linux only so linux definitely has that in its pocket uh as far as as being a modern server os other things in this coming year i'm looking forward to monitorama in 2018 this should be an interesting one i'm going to the the portland oregon one not the one in europe but anybody who is around i i welcome to hang out with and i'd love to see everybody Both of us will be there so show up and uh, come find us I am also speaking at Elasticon in 2018, um, talking about log, log aggregation scaling and pipelines for Fitbit. So that, that should be an interesting talk. I haven't gotten the schedule all lined up yet, but I got word a week or two ago that my, my talk has been accepted. So if anybody is out at Elasticon, I would be happy to hang out with folks. Please take the time to rate the show in Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you would like us to cover. Leave us a comment at the website, operations.fm. Send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm, or use at operations.fm on Twitter. That wraps it up for the 48th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. We are Brendan Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. Thanks, and good night.